Welcome to another episode of Heart to Heart. I am Dr. Columbus Batiste, and once again, it is a pleasure for you to grace me with a few moments of your time. And I'm looking forward to it. This is a special, special Heart to Heart. The reason why is because we are in the month of love. We're in the month of heart awareness. We're in the month of Black History Month, all of which are extremely important to me. And today, I have the pleasure to welcoming really one of my heroes, one of the mentors, one of the individuals. He didn't even know he was a mentor of mine. I, I, I followed him from afar, and it's been such an incredible journey watching his journey. And I'll tell you, you know, I think of myself almost, I'm, I'm trying to be like Kobe Bryant. You know, Kobe Bryant watched those films of Michael Jordan and, 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 and watched his moves and tried to tailor every single little thing off of Michael Jordan down to the way in which he spoke. And so that's what I'm trying to do with Dr. Kim Williams. We have the pleasure today. Come on. We're going to have the pleasure of welcoming in Dr. Kim Williams. Dr. Kim Williams, we know him. We love him. He is such a phenomenal physician, over 40 years of experience as an educator, a researcher, a clinician. He's focused his career on advocacy for nutrition, both on the national and international level, dealing with healthcare disparities, healthcare delivery, and advanced access to cardiac imaging. He's he's uh, the current he's he's currently serving at University of Louisville uh, there. And I'll tell you that he has specialized throughout his career in cardiology, cardionutrition, cardiorheumatology, cardionephrology, preventative cardiology and cardiovascular radiology. He's a past president of the American College of Cardiology. We're going to talk about that. Right. And of the American Society of Nuclear Cardiology. He's a former chairman of the board of directors of the Association of Black Cardiologists, founder of the Urban Cardiology Initiative in Detroit, a program that worked to reduce the ethnic healthcare disparities. He has been involved from the community level to shaping the minds of physicians that may take care of you. I want you heart to heart nation to welcome with me today, Dr. Kim Williams. There he is. Thank you so much, Columbus. It's really a, a pleasure to be here. And uh, thank you for all that you're doing. Uh, you're making a huge difference. And to start off with that one. Uh, well, no, appreciate that. Appreciate that. Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, I know that you're one of the goats, right? I see that. But why off the jump do you have to just just stand me up and have that beautiful red sweater on <laughs> in time for this in time for this show right i mean i couldn't find my red sweater yes it's all about uh february you talk about heart month it's women and heart disease uh the red dress campaign we're wearing red for because uh you know women for the longest time have had heart disease in this country that was under recognized under treated under uh, under managed and uh we're trying to get over that and uh, so uh, there's a lot of red, but uh, a little bit of this is just a, a Louisville Cardinal thing. Ah, okay. okay. <laughs> a lot of red ones I got here, particularly, <laughs> you know, the, uh, uh, the red ties and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great logo, uh, and it per particularly in February. That's good. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. So, okay, before we dive into all the meat, there's so much for us to talk about today. Who are you going for? 
I want you to put it out there on the line. Who are you going for in the Super Bowl? So it's interesting that I have to, I hate to admit this, but once I started going to the Australian Open, it takes you out of the NFL playoff thing. You come back to the United States and you have no idea who's playing. All I know is that Tom Brady lost. <laughs> like, you know, we were all you know, cheering for the older, older people. Um, yes. And uh, but you know, I, I know that uh, there's a, a tennis connection with the Buffalo Bills. Uh, I was really hoping that Jess Bagula, that's the daughter of the owner, oh. uh, who has worked her way up to uh, number three in the world. Uh, okay. We were hoping that she would be, you know, as the number one American, that she would take that tournament. But, you know, see, these are these are tough things. You could you can show up with a lot of uh, credentials, but if you don't perform on the court to your yeah. best uh, in these grand slams, you end up uh, out the door. So it was yeah. uh, that was a little disappointing, and I'm sure she was upset about the Bills losing too. But it's yeah. um, it's it's an interesting time uh, uh, in the tennis world. And uh, but I am looking forward. The, the best part for you know the Super Bowl for me is just getting together with family and yes. uh, and doing stuff and you know the game and and has there ever been another sport where the ha- <coughs> the halftime show gets to be almost more important than than the sport, than the than the score? But uh, looking forward to that too. Absolutely, absolutely. Now I, I just knew inherently you were going to say you're pulling for the Chiefs. A little bit of that red, a little you're bit the same area of the country, you know. And so forth. But no, I I hear you. Okay, well, now you make me want to ask you one other question. So are you a tennis purist that what's your thoughts on the the paddle tennis game? Uh, So it's it's, this is really important. And I and I'd like to I don't want to throw people under the bus. Uh, I am a certified USPTA, you know, professional. uh, And uh, I've had some of my colleagues in my era of colleagues uh, in the USPTA, uh, you know, working in clubs saying, we are going to resist this. You know, this is not tennis. It's not the same. You're not going to get the same benefit. And they end up getting fired. <laughs> mm. <laughs> it's taking over. And a lot of tennis players are upset because mm. the tennis courts are being repainted or removed and replaced with paddle tennis and pickleball. And, yeah. you know, the, the, the concern that I have is that we're throwing something under the bus like plant-based nutrition that has a proven mortality benefit. And so if, you know, you look at studies uh, that say that like Epic, that if you're vegan, you, and whole food plant-based vegan, not junk food vegan, uh, that you are got a 15 year life expectancy improvement. Tennis actually has a 17 year life expectancy difference. Uh, But uh, there was an article published about 10 days ago that talked specifically about uh, kind of going the opposite of what we've been saying for years. That happens all the time, by the way. We're just mm-hmm. wrong. Time. And, and so it said that the high intensity exercise that has a little bit of data, but we're always afraid in people with, with coronary disease, that high intensity exercise actually does a better job of plaque regression. Well, if that data is true, that may underlie the plant, the you know, non-plant-based tennis players doing better. Uh, than they would otherwise because it really is higher intensity. So when I'm watching pickleball, there's a lot of hand-eye coordination. There's a lot of the mental aspects uh, that you have, you know, playing chess on on a field, which is basically what you do in tennis, uh, but you don't have the court coverage. Uh, 
you don't have the little sprints to try to get to the net and and cover the drop shot or you know approaching in the transition game and so and then running back for that lob you know i mean this is this is uh so removing love it. the aerobic um uh exercise portion or reducing it really may not have the same benefit now there that if i keep talking about this just for a second yeah there's so many things that when when uh, this started with the Johns Hopkins Medical Group uh, from the 50s and 60s, they followed five sports, uh, football, basketball, baseball, golf and tennis. Only two sports. And you guess which ones they were, were played lifetime. They correlated the length of playing with how good you were at the sport, which, of course, makes sense. And then it turns out that tennis was the only one that had a mortality benefit. Well, really, what is that really saying? Is it that? Tennis players are more strategic thinkers, and so they have more life success. Is it that people who play tennis have more money? Uh, so that translates That's to it. Going. Yeah, exactly. Or is it really about the fitness? And it was all about the plaque regression the whole time. Uh, no one's ever explained what it is. There's probably a lot of confounding variables. So I'm always a little uncomfortable saying that tennis has a, a huge life expectancy uh, improvement because I'm not sure what I'm what I'm talking about, I'm not going to give it up. <laughs> years, uh, but uh, you know, is it may be a, a lot of things other than tennis. Strategic thinking in life and planning uh, uh, is probably one of the more important skills. And you don't become a good tennis player unless you can do that. Think on the fly. Um, you know, adjust your strategy. Have a plan A and a plan B. You know, that plan A is great, but the, the modern philosopher Mike Tyson. <laughs> that's right he said you know everybody's got a plan until they get popped in the mouth that's and, right and that is something you have to be able to you have to have high frustration tolerance to play this mm -hmm. sport not always shown by the pros who are cracking rackets and stuff like that but john McEnroe, ex exactly and oh nick curios oh my goodness you know you get you know you get some talented people but you know it, it you do generally have a lot of strategic thinking and people who are able to uh, deal with problem solving on the fly um, so anyway, that's uh, there's a. It would be great if everyone who was a tennis player became a vegan, oh, yeah. uh, like Novak Djokovic. And yes. so he won his tenth Australian Open the other day. Uh, it was a pleasure to watch him. I you know staying in the stands for two weeks, which I do, usually working. People laughing at me. Why is he working here? Because uh, I have a lot of work to do. <laughs> yeah. The fact of the matter is, those two weeks of vacation, uh, I actually get all the manuscripts and stuff done and the IRB protocols and the like. Well, but I had to, you know, put the computer and the, you know, aside when he's on the court, he's playing a different sport than everyone else. Um, mm. and his recovery has to do with the plant-based nutrition. And it would be great if the rest of the, the world would catch up with not just how he hits the ball, but how he actually recovers as an athlete. Um, right. and, and I know there's some Kyrie Irvings and some other people who are doing this. Um, Chris Paul, I think. Chris Paul, yes. And, and they, it's, it's, I guess there's a lot of forces that make people not want to do plant-based nutrition, but athletically, you know, people are asking me, you know, well, are you going to play some ITF events? Are you going to play, you know, you're playing so well. Um, and then when they find out how old I am, they say, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just lost to somebody who, you know, I just got out drilled by somebody who's 45 years older than me. And well, so, okay. All right. So, yeah. so, I, we have to stand down this path for a little bit longer, a little bit. Okay. I know it's hard. All right, listen, guys out there. I know it's heart month, but, but, but you see how the great Dr. Williams is integrating heart health yep. and nutrition into our conversation about tennis. But here's the thing. 
I think that's phenomenal. I think you have a second career. I think you should be a broadcaster for <laughs> the for the tennis, right? And right. and imagine this that now you're integrating components of health and wellness as you are a, you're you're broadcasting the game and the nuances that are there and integrating the, the power of the mind to the musculature to the heart and what's really transpiring. That right there, I mean, you think of it. The NFL has do- they have doctors who come on. Mm-hmm. And they will go and they'll break over to them and in the sideline reporters. I'm going to put a pitch. Somebody's going to see this and they're going to reach out to you and try to snag you from the University of Louisville. Right. That's well, sure. I do have uh, broadcast experience, uh, you know, not just in the cardiology world, but I actually did uh, broadcast for the Australian Open. I think it was 2006. Uh, oh, they nice. had me in there in the booth for about an hour. Uh, it was a, it was a great time, you know, sharing observations. Uh, just because, you know, I've been a student of the game since the early 70s and, you know, really uh, believe in the benefits of, of, of fitness and can, you know, as long as heart disease is the leading killer around the world, we need to be doing more tennis and more plant-based nutrition. So. That's right. That's right. You know, folks, I'm going to tell you, Kobe Bryant, the great Kobe Bryant said this once. He said, I'm, I'm not a great basketball player. I'm a great person. And I do great things. This is what Dr. Williams is espousing to us. He said, I'm not a great cardiologist. I'm a great tennis player. I'm a great broadcaster. And I'm a renaissance man. All right. So last question about tennis. Mm -hmm. You could match up against anyone across the net. Who is that going to be past or present? Oh, two. Well, you know, I've I played in an era where I played enough of the people who got up to as high as probably the highest person that I ever played and won a match again, got to 250 in the world. Um, but I would say that um, it's a, there's a sort of a top six that I would love to play with. I, uh, Martina Navratilova is a good friend. I've played with her. Uh, okay. And, and uh, it's, it's always great to be on the court with, with greatness you can just feel it when she walks on the court and then starts <laughs> hitting the ball. You say, my gosh, you know, it's, it's really amazing. And, and that's fun. Um, but I would say that, you know, on the men's side, the big four, um, you know, that, and I'm going to include Andy Murray um, because he's the person who convinced me that I should have my hip done <laughs> when I saw him come back, uh, mm. you know, old tennis injury and uh, that anterior hip replacement that only a handful of surgeons do around the mm. country got him back on tour, got Bob Bryan, uh, you know, uh, 122 doubles titles with Mike Bryan. Uh, he came back as well. Uh, and I can tell you that that uh, hip replacement really did change everything for me. I can actually cover the court again. So, and you know, being, uh, so it really does make a difference. And I think there's a cardiovascular benefit to being able to get back and, and work hard, like we talked about in terms of high intensity. Um, so, uh, but the, the other big three, these are people who are so phenomenal at what they've uh, done and how they sort of made the, each other better by competing with each other. And I know Djokovic is probably the only one who's left because probably because he's the only one who's plant-based. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it'd be great if Nadal could get over his injuries and Roger finally mm-hmm. succumbed to them. Um, great to see, <clears throat> you know, it, and Andy Murray in the Australian Open played at the level of how he did when he was winning Grand Slams. The difference is you can't play it for seven matches when you mm-hmm. get to a certain point in your career. You could play the same level, just not as long. 
Uh, on the women's side, obviously the Venus, the Venus and Serena Williams, uh, you know, Serena is just pure greatness by grit and determination uh, and talent and training. She has a, a lot of stuff going on. I have a lot of respect for Venus because of the Shogun syndrome and the mm -hmm. fact that she went plant-based, she was able to make a comeback. Uh, and that influenced a lot of people. She may not know it, but just watching what happened to her changed a lot of people's diets. And they realized that inflammatory conditions can be dramatically improved. Autoimmune conditions that are debilitating, debilitating mm. can actually be improved with plant-based nutrition. And uh, there she is back. That was 2011. Yeah. And she's still actually out there getting wild cards. And I don't know how, how much longer she'll want to play um, because, again, she can play at that level, but, you know, only for a That's set. And, a half. and then, you know, she ends up losing to somebody who's who can't, you know, will never have her history. But... Um, you know, that 2017, uh, you know, U.S. Open where she got to the, the semifinals and getting to the finals of the Australian Open years after she had had the Sjogren syndrome and, you know, it was past 30. That was a that's a remarkable achievement that I'm not sure people you, you have to kind of be in medicine and plant based medicine to understand how important that was. Um, and and uh, but I think enough people have used her example to say that, you know, athleticism and health. Uh, and nutrition are intimately correlated one with yes. this. Um, so, uh, I, so I, I really would, it would be fun to go out and, you know, just hit the balls with them. But I, I still, in it, the, my time with Martina Navratilova was so much fun. I, you know, I'll always remember that one because uh, oh. she's just a wonderful person. Uh, her, Billie Jean King, so many people who made a difference. You know, yeah. you can make a change, but can you make a difference? Yeah, that's that's really what they did. The the uh, the stands that they took, uh, whether it was mm -hmm. getting women on their tour or uh, uh, having a more open approach to uh, acceptance of who you are. Uh, these are some really great leaders that we've had in the tennis world. Oh, that's that's you know, you're right. It's it, it ends up being about making a difference in what you can do inside your area, your sphere of influence that then radiates outside of it is, is important and being passionate about it. And so I love that. I love that. I love that. Okay. So why do women have, what's the deal with women in, in heart disease? Tell so, me about that. So, you know, I, I am a student of Nanette Winger as a former Grady resident uh, and intern. And uh, she really uh, sort of started us to Think. And she was saying some uncomfortable things that, you know, all of you are only been screening women uh, with the bikini approach that, you know, mm. you know, pap smears and and mammograms. And because there was thought it was thought that with the estrogens and the better lipids that women didn't get, end up getting heart disease. And that's just completely not true. Mm. And uh, yes, if you listen to the WISE trial, this Noel Berry out there near you in California um, at uh, Cedars, their publications showed very clearly that ischemic, the women's ischemic uh, syndrome evaluation, WISE, the presentation for women can be highly variable. And you can't necessarily expect the positive Levine sign of uh, mm -hmm. having the classic symptoms with which men present. And you have to be a little bit more thoughtful and uh, and not have that. I don't know if you saw the uh, M Miranda Bailey on Grey's Anatomy. They actually went after this yes. uh, because particularly it's not just women, it's African-American women. Yes. This, this was shown in a New England Journal article uh, about 
1987 or so. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I know what you're talking about. Exactly. Uh, uh, Keith Shulman, you know, went to now you have to remember when it was, you know, back <laughs> then there was there's always been implicit bias. OK, but when the vast majority of the mature workforce and these were mostly physicians, men in their 50s and 60s that took this survey, almost all were Caucasian. That that generation didn't have all the data that we have now. They were left with their biases and their experience. And so uh, when his that New England Journal of Medicine said took eight actors, gave them the same story of unstable angina, needed to go to the cath lab. uh, And you were, you know, 0.6 was the hat was your hazard ratio, your likelihood ratio of getting to the cath lab if you were black and 0.6 if you were a woman. And so these are terrible numbers because uh, they were all giving the same story. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so we had we needed to get as a as a profession, we need to get over ourselves. And so that's why it's so important to have heart disease recognition, uh, do more risk factor screening, uh, and we start, once you start doing that, then you realize that there are some things in the cardiovascular arena where women are particularly worse than men. Uh, so the SCAD, uh, standing mm-hmm. for spontaneous coronary artery dissection, maybe it's estrogen mediated. However, it's mediated. This is something that we have to understand is a problem more for women. It's not uniquely, not completely women, but it's more for women. And we need to understand when it's there. Uh, the other one, you know, well, I you know, when, just I want, I want to tell the audience here, for those who may not know what spontaneous coronary artery dissection is, the way I describe it to folks is that imagine if you have like a nice pair of slacks and those pair of slacks or pants that have like the lining on the inside mm-hmm. and somehow you have a little tear at the top and you keep putting your leg down the, the, pa- the, la- the, the pants leg and it goes down the wrong side, that hole expands. That's what dissection is. You begin to tear inside the lining and it's not the true area. And that leads to major issues inside the body. And that can take place in the aorta or the coronary arteries. And so that's what Dr. Williams is referring to. But I want you to be familiar with some of these terminologies because it's extremely important to your to your uh, health and well-being. Absolutely. And thank you for that uh, analogy. I'm going to use that if I'm, I'm going to blame it on you. <laughs> that's, uh, that's very well. Uh, the other one that we have to talk about uh, is just it's hard uh, to talk about, um, you know, after the Australian Open, <clears throat> it turns out uh, the Australian Open gives a uh, Norman Brooks, Brooks trophy he was a you know, great Australian tennis player and captain of the Davis Cup team and all this stuff on the women's side. It's a little sad. It's the Daphne Ackhurst Memorial Trophy. Because she was a five-time uh, Australian Open uh, champ, got married, had a kid, uh, and then had a, a uh, ectopic pregnancy and had maternal-fetal mortality. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that story is always sad whenever you hear it, when it's somebody young, it's someone who has young children. And what we have in this country is a tremendously terrible maternal-fetal mortality rate our African-American maternal fetal mortality rate is similar and worse than many third world countries. And the fact of the matter is most of it is cardiovascular. Yeah. And so we as a specialty need to get into 
maternal fetal medicine. There needs to be maternal fetal cardiologists. And mm -hmm. we're working on that. Uh, and I hope every, I, I know as a, as a uh, director of cardiac services, and I'm, you're probably thinking the same way, I'm hoping that we all pour resources into stopping this, uh, this really epidemic of maternal fetal mortality. Uh, and the, you know, the funniest part about it is that almost everything I say goes back to plant-based nutrition. Um, <laughs> because if you look at the data on uh, accelerated hypertension or eclampsia, preeclampsia, the odds of this happening in someone who is doing a whole food plant-based diet is extremely low. It's the diet again. And so at, at what point are we going to protect our, our population by fixing the nutrition? Wow. Wow. I mean, it's so much layered inside of what you just laid out for folks in terms of the increased burden of heart disease, the uh, spontaneous coronary artery dissection, the, the film and maternal death rates. And one thing that we haven't really touched, we've touched on it slightly, is the fact that with the estimates, roughly about half of black women in the United States have some form of cardiovascular disease That's and more likely to die from it. And, and the one thing you brought up, the study from the 1980s New England Journal published, but then yet we still see persistence in terms of disparities, in terms of utilization of resources when it comes to acute coronary syndrome. You know, I always give a personal example. So I'll tell you, and I have HIPAA approval. She's my wife. So my <laughs> wife, right after COVID, she came down with COVID, not much of symptoms at all, um, at all. She did fine, no issues whatsoever. And probably about several weeks later on, she calls me on the phone. She's taking my daughter to a birthday dinner, um, mask and everything at that time, as is a year or two ago. And she says, honey, I think I'm having chest pain. I think I'm having a heart attack. I was like, quit playing. Now, this woman never thinks anything is wrong with her or anyone else, and it's always positive. I say, okay, tell me what's going on. Oh, I took the dog out for a walk, and I started having some chest pain. Okay. And she goes, I came home, and I took some aspirin. I said, okay. And then she goes, I drove, I drove our, your, our daughter out to the, the restaurant, and I started having more, more symptoms, and I'm really scared. Yeah. So, okay. We're in this state with increased thrombosis. I'm gonna fast forward the story after I told her to call the paramedics, had a friend who's a physician go out there and meet her as I was on my way over there. She didn't go with the paramedics. They kind of minimized her symptoms, took her to the ER myself and drove her to the ER. I did not have ER where I performed procedures on hundreds of individuals, but I did not have my badge with me, nor did I have my white coat. Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Critical. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I didn't have any of that. So I'm waiting inside of the inside of the line to speak with my wife in a wheelchair to speak with a nurse who basically, long story short, she ignores me despite my professional detailed description of what was going on. She parks her in the back, doesn't get an EKG immediately. I call my wife. She said, I said, where are you? She said, I'm waiting in the waiting room. There's nobody in here. I was appalled yeah. about the fact that her she was overlooked as an African-American female in her 50s that as far as anyone could tell, we're, we're just Joe Schmo out there inside of coming into to the, the hospital. And, and it really gave me insight in my first experience firsthand to what bias can do 
in terms of the evaluation of what potentially can be a life-threatening situation for someone that could be overlooked. And, and so I guess the question comes down, not everything is going to be centered on that, those types of scenarios there. And that was indeed really my first in my, in my years living that I've personally experienced my kids, my parents, my wife to that point in time. And so what is, this obviously is one of the explanations, but what are some of the explanations as to like why we're having, why we see this disproportionate in gender bias and racial bias towards um, that leads to this, this, this issue? So yeah, historically, <clears throat> you're absolutely right. It was thought there, there are publications and people have seen them that Negroes don't get angina pectoris. And, you know, this is, uh, you know, was completely wrong. The only part that was right is that in older days, particularly with uh, the diet that uh, not to talk about slave food, I know a different program, <laughs> but you've done so well with that. Um, the cardiovascular mortality uh, was so much uh, that you didn't get to see the degenerative diseases of the 60s and 70s because people weren't around. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, to, and to if we're trying to improve medical care to the point where we do have the longevity that is in other developed countries and we don't, we're not there yet, um, we really will start to see the effects of all the chronic disease, particularly nutrition, our lifestyle, uh, the fact that there's so much, uh, we don't even call it obesity anymore. We call it diabetes, uh, correctly so. And when we look at the fact that 80% of our healthcare expenditures are on chronic diseases, that we're spending about one-fifth of our gross domestic product on healthcare, um, I try to tell people that not only do we need to get rid of uh, all of our biases and treat people fairly and not have big differences between the capabilities of an inner city hospital versus a university hospital, not have big differences in ER ordering of tests based on race and gender, which still exists and it keeps getting published. But you know, the, the fact that they're being published is going to help. Uh, we can refer to them, we can talk about them, we can try to fix them. Um, but at some point, <clears throat> all of the differences, and I know this is a, I, I, I think is a controversial theory because you know, I, I've just been talking about it for a few months, but uh, if you like me, uh, a little bit of a digression. Yeah. Um, to be uh, sort of toward the end of my presidential years at ACC, one of the things you have to do for it, that you're honored and privileged to do is to go around the world and uh, represent ACC at different meetings. And uh, I actually was in one in Panama. And um, loads of stories about the Panama and meeting with ESC and AHA and all the stuff. But the one thing that I saw was I just, you had to go historically and go see the Panama Canal. Mm. And it's, it struck me uh, immediately looking at the pictures that this, there was a huge racial disparity in mortality in building the Panama Canal. It was so bad that the French quit. They quit mm. out of a humanitarian concern that they were basically killing uh, more black people because uh, it was 1880s, 1890s, they had, uh, slavery was pretty much over and men were taking a boat, coming to Panama to work for the French so they could make enough money to feed their families. And they were dying of yellow fever. And it's, after they gave up 10 years later with Teddy Roosevelt pushing it, Walter Reed folks figured out what was going on with yellow fever. That is the particular mosquito. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, when, why did this get so bad? Because what were you doing trying to, to uh, dig a, a Panama Canal? Mm. You were making ditches and the ditches had water. <laughs> okay. mm. mm-hmm. And uh, they were, there was a, a other little things like when people would get a sick or they'd be in their bed, they put water uh, on the legs of the bed, for example, to try to make sure that spiders and everything else wouldn't crawl up into the bed. Well, mm. that they were full of mosquitoes and mosquito mm. larvae. So once we had the Wild to Read folks figure that out and go and spray oil on every single uh, uh, open water area, it went away. And the mm. United States completed the Panama Canal. And, you know, you can talk about the politics and all, all the stuff that happened thereafter. But the fact of the matter is the black people stopped dying at a higher rate. Now, you're probably wondering, why am I talking about this? Because there was a one good example, as was polio. When I was growing up, there was still polio uh, in my neighborhood. And it was the mm. black people who had it. It was mm. smallpox as well. There was a racial difference in smallpox mortality. Uh, because we just didn't have the medical care and the ability. And there were actually articles written about how bad it was in blacks and, you know, kind of had to stay away from them. Mm-hmm. What was going, how did we get rid of those racial disparities by stopping the disease? That's yeah. how we got rid of it. And so when you talk about cardiovascular disease being 21% higher in African-Americans and over 50% of, have, of uh, African-American women having some form of cardiovascular disease, one way to get rid of the healthcare disparity is to get rid of the disease. Yes. And yes. so we have numerous examples of it. Let's do everything we can, particularly with lifestyle, with diet and exercise, the obesity goes away, the diabetes, hypertension, all of it goes away. And then the fact that we can't figure out how to have an unbiased system to order mm. a CAT scan when somebody needs it or yes. do KG on your wife within the first 10 minutes, like the guidelines say, Yes. Become less of an issue if we, yes. you know, just, you know, that that uh, diagram with, you know, equity versus equality. Yes. With, you know, everyone's seen that mm-hmm. one. How about the, there was one somebody did it right. They said uh, there's equity, there's equality, then there's justice. Justice is where <laughs> you need those boxes because you remove the fence. Yes. Everybody. Absolutely. So I'm, that's, that's right. what I would like to see happen. Remove the fence, remove the disease. Uh, and then we can figure out, we have more time to figure out all of the social determinants of health uh, if the health is better. Love it, love it, love it, love it. All right, yeah, that you encapsulated it well right there. And that really that really sets the tone. So I'm gonna throw out, this is gonna be, a, this is gonna be our, our game we're gonna play, rapid fire. Okay. I'm gonna throw out a term. And you're gonna you're gonna give me you're gonna give me a one minute lecture on it on the pros and cons or the cons or whatever the cardiovascular implications. Sugar. Oh, that's a tough one because uh, I was just doing this with my family. My old, oldest son was talking about putting a lock on the cabinet with the candy in it, and I was saying, you know, I hate to tell you, but you really need to, you need that lock. You know, his brothers and sisters saying, "Oh, let them have it," and I'm saying, I sent them. Uh, all the JAMA article showing the linear relationship. I'm sorry, it was curvilinear uh, mm-hmm. relationship between sugar consumption and mortality. I know they'd never want to hear that stuff from that, <laughs> uh, but th- those are the medical facts. And, you know, I, w- I was one of those 
people who did coffee and tea as an excuse to have sugar until the data came out because, you know, so I, you know, that, that whole thing, I don't mind dying. I just don't want it to be my fault. That means that I pay attention to the literature and I implement it immediately. So when I saw that JAMA article, I just stopped. Uh, was it fun to stop? You know, no. Uh, is it an inconvenient? Sure. But um, the fact of the matter is you could tolerate small amounts. But uh, if people would look at not only uh, sugar, but refined grains as well, and juices, and there's so many people on the healthcare side who think that juices are good for you, I got to remind them, smoothies are good, juices are bad. Why? Because of the fiber. And so if you keep that sugar fiber ratio four to one, five to one, uh, you're going to do pretty well. But there's some, you know a lot of snack foods out there. I won't say which ones on a, on a broadcast. Yeah. Two to one ratio. <laughs> These are things that raise your insulin level. And we love insulin banting and best and cured all the, well, no, insulin drives obesity. Yes, it does. Insulin drives plaque formation. And so yes. keep your insulin levels uh, as low as naturally possible with diet and exercise. But also what we didn't recognize until I think last year is that when you do a sugary drink, we know that there was mortality, but we didn't realize that within 30 minutes, your C-reactive protein, your inflammatory markers go up. And mm-hmm. so you're putting yourself at risk. And so I know it's hard for people to under, to take that meal and remove the soft drink uh, or change it to water, tea or coffee, unsweetened, put some you know non-animal-based milk in it to, to, to make it easier if, if, if you're used to that. But we've got to understand that uh, sugar has a lot of problems. It's one of the major issues. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, when you look at our vegan diets, um, mm. a lot of them have a lot of sugar. Awful you know, lot. Beignets and the don't, vegan donuts and uh, red velvet cupcakes. Well, and I, so I sort of tease my, because, you know, you know, you and I are healthcare vegans. We're cardiologists. We're frontline yes. cardiologists. Yes. I never want to do CPR on another person. You never want to cath another left main. I mean, th- these are our goals, right? That's but, right. But we're not the majority of vegans. They're no. plant, they are planet people, which yes. I love. I now have nine grandkids. I think the planet's pretty important. Okay. Yes. And they're animal rights people. And if you see any of those films about how animals are treated, uh, and then you know, so badly. And, and, you know, how they feel going into becoming somebody's food, you have to start to feel for that. But if you, if you, if that's your reason for being vegan and you're not paying attention to healthcare and you're eating all this stuff, I kind of tease them once we had that jam, that Jack article saying that a uh, unhealthy vegan diet actually is a little worse than eating Mm -hmm. an animal laden diet. So I tell them it's really good for the planet. No greenhouse (laughs) gases, no, that's right cruelty and it gets rid of humans that's right exactly (laughs) exactly (laughs) some people may be happy about that though inside that movement all right all right i have have another one this is a a a simple one okay we're gonna say red meat versus chicken and turkey so the biggest uh let me start with what i think is the largest misconception of medical literature in my brief history of you know 50 years of being in medicine. And that is the Predimed trial. These lovely people did a fantastic trial, hard to do randomization uh, between uh, continuing your red meat and switching to mostly fish, but with some poultry 
half of those people who were randomized were given um, olive oil and the other half were sent nuts, okay? And the big deal that everybody heard about because it got published twice uh, because of some a retraction, I never saw a, a study get retracted and become more famous, but that's essentially what happened. Um, yeah, but in both versions, 2013 and 2018, what they showed was a 30% decrease in the composite endpoint of heart attack, stroke, and death. And I encourage everyone who's quoted that, everyone who said that the, the Mediterranean diet is good for you, please go back and look at table three in the New England Journal of Medicine. And what you will see that the 30% decrease in that combined endpoint was all stroke. The heart attack rate changing from red meat to poultry and, and, uh, and fish was the same. The cardiovascular mortality was the same. The overall mortality was the same. And so please, unless I'm a neurologist, in a group of neurologists, this is not a diet that I would be recommending uh, for human health. And yet every year it floats to the top of US News and World Report as if stroke was the only thing or they, they were trying to buy that, that you know, that 30% decrease in a combined endpoint. We've got to be a little bit more savvy than that and not tell people that you're going to improve your heart. And, you know, it didn't make a lot of sense because when you're eating the flesh of a deceased animal, not to say anything gross, uh, you're going to get an inflammatory response and it has cholesterol because, you know, if you've got muscle and you're moving around, that's cholesterol. And so now I think there are other issues here that are worth talking about. One of them is cancer. The other one has come up that I hope everybody is aware of in the last two or three years, all of the National Kidney Foundation, everyone is all over chronic kidney disease. And it's a big deal for our African-Americans. Not just the APOL1 gene that we have in about 4% of us. It's it's the fact that we are 12% of the population and 35% of the dialysis patients. It's extremely expensive for Medicare because you automatically qualify until you die. And the fact of the matter is that cost is not sustainable. And we, as a people with systemic racism, poor neighborhoods, poor jobs, poor education, we're not paying all the taxes to cover that dialysis. So it's a burden on the entire nation. Now having said that, chronic kidney disease, uh, I got into it, not just because my father had sudden cardiac death after dialysis. It wasn't just that, it's the, the recognition that chronic kidney disease People don't die generally of kidney disease. They die of heart disease. So as a cardiologist, mm-hmm. you've got to be interested in the kidney. Well, it turns out that animal protein was doing this the entire time. Please, everyone, put it in your 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 search engine, animal protein, chronic kidney disease, and you will be appalled and hopefully never eat animal protein again if you care anything about your kidneys. Now, it's true of the brain, true of the heart, you know, Alzheimer's disease, coronary disease, heart failure, all of them related to eating particularly red meat. Yes. But the TMAO level, trimethylamine N-oxide, which the Cleveland Clinic discovered and is pushed as a risk factor, is so much higher when you're doing red meat uh, than with any of the white meats. And so there is a distinction that we have to draw that end-stage kidney disease is uniquely related to consumption of red meat. Uh, But animal protein in general, but red meat in in particular, uh, when you stop it, you will see a drop in the creatinine. And it's not just because you're taking less creatine, which is true, Mm -hmm. it's true. Uh, But if you look at like statin C or some other marker of kidney function, those improve as well. 
you can arrest the progression of kidney disease just by getting off of the animal protein, particularly red meat. So I, I, there is something to say for changing uh, from, you know, from red meat to so-called white meat, uh, but it's not as much as we think in, in the Correct. cardiology arena. Love it. Love it. Thank you for that. That you shed more light than I was even going with it in my own mind in terms of uh, what, what to, to tell folks. Okay. The last animal pro product one that I'm going to throw out there is eggs. What comes yeah. to mind when, you, when I say eggs? So the incredible edible, are you kidding me? <laughs> As it turns out, uh, I, I turned, I'm checking the mirror or checking the camera. Did I turn green with envy? <laughs> about the egg board, they are incredibly effective mm -hmm. at making a product and uh, that has consistently been shown to increase mortality and touting the benefits of it. Uh, and I, I would hope that everyone at this point, I know this was a little more controversial a few years ago, but there were actual, you know, it's actually data out there saying that uh, increasing your egg consumption with 250 to 300 milligrams of cholesterol per yolk that eating whole eggs does not hurt your cholesterol. And even if it did, it raises the HDL. So mm -hmm. that balances out the increase in the LDL. Well, now that's all blown up. We do know that high HDL actually in can heart and the Copenhagen trial increase HDL increases mortality. We were wrong 60 years. Don't mm -hmm. be trying to increase your HDL. It's a dangerous thing to do. Um, and that message hasn't gotten out there nearly enough either. But uh, it turns out that if, I, if rather than argue with people about the eggs, I just ask them to put in their search terms, eggs mortality. And they'll see uh, it started with uh, one of Don Lloyd Jones, recent president of the AHA, uh, looking at a large data set, showing an increase in mortality. And then people were saying, well, the pushback was, well, that's because it was American. And if you look at, you know, other countries, eggs are safe. It's just that here, you know, they're going to a fast food place and the egg has Canadian bacon and a refined grain and mm. it's the eggs are safe and just people are just doing it wrong. Well, uh, soon thereafter, there was a publication from uh, from Italy and they were different. OK, the Don Lloyd Jones said that the mortality reached statistical significance if you did two eggs a week. The Italian one said um, uh, if you did, um, if, uh, oh, I'm sorry, you know, his said, the Italian one said four eggs a week, Don Lloyd Jones said a half an egg a day. Oops. That's the same. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. and, so, much. and so, uh, and then there was more recently, I think it was last year, there was one from China that actually said the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so let's just look at the data objectively uh, not the marketing, uh, which is incredible. Uh, let's actually, <laughs> let's, let's look at the objective data that says that eggs probably should not be consumed. And there's good reasons not to, in terms of uh, what it does to lipids um, and, and what it does to plaque and mortality. All right. All right. You heard it here. Leave the egg, leave the, leave the uh, McMuffin egg alone. But uh, <laughs> here's what we're going to say. How about sleep? So uh, I'm so glad that you brought it up. Um, it's a, a topic that those of us in tough professions really need to wrestle with. Yes. Um, and I, you know, personally, you know, going, you know, life simple seven, doing everything I can and 
and then not sleeping enough because yeah. uh, I end up every, every time I do something, it takes it comes out of my sleep. And if I add anything, well, fact is we, <clears throat> we've got to reprioritize. We need to reorganize. We have to get adequate sleep. The data on sleep and mortality is very robust. And as you are aware, but maybe not everybody in the audience has heard, the American Heart Association Life Simple 7 has been changed about two months ago yes. to Life's Essential 8. And what did they add? Sleep. Yes. And so there's uh, several aspects of that, particularly with our obesity epidemic, where people have sleep disordered breathing related to their weight uh, and obstructive sleep apnea that needs to be diagnosed. Uh, we have home devices that can evaluate your sleep. Um, the uh, I was going to show you my Apple Watch that I'm not wearing. <laughs> so, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Uh, I or actually, the aura ring. The aura ring right here. <laughs> there you go. Absolutely. Uh, having a device that can tell you that you're having uh, sleep disordered breathing or not getting good sleep and so that you can go in and get evaluated and get it treated is really important. <clears throat> but, um, you know, for those of us who are fit, and it's not an obstructive issue, it's an organization issue. We really need to double down and, and be respectful of the fact that uh, we need our brain to work. And if you wanna have long-term function of your brain, you know, that extra manuscript that you're finishing at 3 a.m., you know, you really could do that the next day. And you know, if somebody's upset about a deadline, a week later, they've forgotten about it if you turned it in a day late. So yes, I'd say let's focus on sleep. Absolutely. All right, we're gonna, end with this last one. This one may be controversial, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't think I've ever had this conversation with you like this. What about the red wine? So it's interesting that uh, I I have to admit that, that I have a personal bias and I try to stay objective. But if I try to drink wine, I just get spasms in my face because of the taste. <laughs> and so I was hoping all this time because I've, you know, committed to doing everything medically that's proven mm -hmm. I just do everything I can. And I was always worried that the data was showing that non-drinkers had higher cardiovascular mortality. Well, my excuse was, so uh, you might uh, know the name George Abella, if you haven't seen it, uh, it's worth looking uh, online, mm. uh, Google his name. He's chief of cardiology, I think still at Michigan State. He's the guy who, with the cholesterol crystal pictures, taking cholesterol, putting it in a, in a tissue, in a bath, in a beaker. And if you cool it, you'll see these crystals form. And his idea is that all of the acute coronary syndrome is when you get to a super saturation point uh, because you ate animals typically uh, again, and you, that acute rise uh, leads to crystallization. Remember that fifth grade experiment where you took the mm -hmm. shirt and the string and they came yes. back the next morning and it was all crystallized. He <laughs> said it was happening, but sugar makes these, you know, rhomboid type of things, cholesterol makes spears. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that punctures your, your, you don't even have to have a thin fibrous cap, but it'll just <laughs> the fibrous, fibrous cap and give you an acute coronary syndrome associated with the rise in cholesterol. Well, um, one of the things uh, that went along with that whole theory that red wine or alcohol was actually protective is that his data shows that the two best ways to stop uh, the, the cholesterol from crystallizing despite the saturation, super saturation. One is to put a statin in the solution and the other one was alcohol. Mm. And so we were kind of bought into this whole thing epidemiologically. There was a little bit of biochemistry behind it that alcohol was somehow going to, you know, solve our, <laughs> no chemistry pun intended, solve our <laughs> problem. 
as it, but it turns out that the latest data says that alcohol pretty much in any uh, quantity is harmful. Um, and so I feel absolved for not being a drinker. And, uh, and you know, it, it started with the, uh, for those of you who are hypertension, reading our 2017 hypertension guidelines, two drinks for men as a maximum, one drink for women, that now really we should do an update five years later, ooh, six years yes. later, uh, and say uh, that zero is best uh, for cardiovascular effect. Uh, and so I, I, I feel for all the people who had heart failure, who thought they were actually making things a little better with alcohol, you're only making things worse. So uh, I, I think hopefully that, that, that uh, uh, episode of our cardiovascular protection with alcohol has come and gone and gone for good. Yes. Yes, man. I'm gonna tell you guys. So yes, I am a board certified cardiologist and interventional cardiologist. I am a student of lifestyle and nutrition. Yes, I read manuscripts, but I pale in comparison to the great Dr. Kim Williams. I have learned today myself, all right? I'll tell you what, what take home point for me that I was unaware of, and I, this is going into the memory banks, and I'm gonna have to pull up the study and, and dig through this, this one too, as well as the rise in C-reactive protein within 30 minutes of a, ingestion of a sugary beverage. I did not, I wasn't aware of that data. That is powerful. That's powerful. You know, they always say from, from the lips to the hips, but this is, from, this, this is from the lips to the inflammation that can lead to everything exploding, right? Uh, so you all have been blessed. Right now, I'll tell you, for Heart Health Month, you could not have watched a more impactful uh, series here today than, than listening to Dr. Kim Williams. And so I am so grateful that you took time out of your day to come and share this wealth of knowledge with everyone. And I will be remiss. So I have to, one, I'm going to do a little self-promotion of an event that Dr. Williams is going to be featured at. So we are in conjunction with Plantrition Project. Any of you out there listening, we are launching a first-time conference called the Health Equity Lifestyle Project. It's going to take place in Huntsville, Alabama, April 2nd through 4th a unique experience that's going to allow you to take a look into disparities, gender and, and, and racial, looking at the role of social determinants of health, looking at the role and the power of nutrition and what each and every one of us can do, whether or not you are in education, you have a, you're in business, you are, go to a place of, of faith and worship, or whether or not you're in a hospital, we all need to come together to stop this deadly thing that's called heart disease. That's the number one killer, undisputed, since 1918. It's time that we make greater strides. We made some strides, but we need to make strides within lifestyle, awareness, and education is the key components to it. So once again, thank you, Dr. Williams. Thank you all for tuning in to another episode of Heart to Heart. I look forward to catching you next time. And you can follow Dr. Williams. Where can they follow you? Well, are you, are you on social media? Uh, I am. Um, and uh, we put out something every, every week from uh, University of Louisville. Uh, education is our is a very big deal here in Louisville at uh, at in Cardinalville, and uh, so I'm uh, at uh, Cardio Tennis, which is spelled C A R D I O one zero S Tennis. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, yeah, uh, happy to have you follow me. And uh, let me just uh, put a plug on your plug, uh, <clears throat> Plantrition Project for the last five going on six years has been our sponsor for the International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention. And I'm gonna ask you publicly 
running this meeting that your proceedings be published in the IJDRP. So can you commit oh, to that for me? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> That'll be this great. Is this is important. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to, for those of you out there, the help, H-E-L-P conference.org. Register, share it, share this broadcast. I'll tell you, it may save a life. You get a little sports, get a little food, get a little culture, a little history. No better place than here at Heart to Heart. Thanks so much. Good to see you. Take care. Thanks.